All right. Well, this is Winging It. This is the show that happens in the in-between weeks, the off weeks, when birds of a feather proper is not happening. We are quite literally in every way winging it. So I come into this little uh, show and I know what we're talking about. David has 0% idea and he fucking loves it. I do. That's... No, I don't need to prepare. In fact, I can't prepare. You can't. It is absolutely dogmatically decreed that I cannot prepare. And that, of course, makes it uh, very near and dear to my heart. And by the way, I never thought I'd hear birds of a feather and proper used in the same sentence. So, <laughs> you, <laughs> congratulations. You were expecting to, improper, yeah, but yes. I mean, proper and birds, two things you never think you're going to... Well, I mean, I uh, kicked off the show with fuck right away. I mean, yeah. I didn't want to wait on that. I just get it, get it going right out of the gate, so... What are we talking about this time? Well, we're going to talk about major albums that turned 40 this year in 2020. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> so are you thinking of any? I saw your brain. I heard the wheels. I heard things going. I'm more of a 45-year kind of guy myself. But it's oh, just my. like, usually, I've said this one, two, 400 times, I don't know, that uh, all of the stuff that's having its 40-year anniversary, its 45-year anniversary, or even 50, that's iconic and legendary. These were new releases in my day and oh, everything. And, uh, but we're talking about 40 years now. I was already, uh, I was already 19. Uh, yeah, I was, yeah, I was still music crazed and everything. 19, yeah, so this is going to be uh, a very big deal for me. I'm quite certain, since I have a keen recollection of that era and the releases that she will no doubt talk about. Absolutely. So I say without much further ado, we just get into it because... Yes, without much further do-do, let's... <laughs> <laughs> without any do-do, I say. Let's just, let's just keep it clean, okay? Um, John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Double Fantasy. Ah, see? John Lennon returned to music after spending five years on the sidelines as he raised his young son, Sean. Alternating with partner Yoko Ono, Double Fantasy showed Lennon finally finding domestic happiness on songs like Just Like Starting Over, Watching the Wheels, Beautiful Baby, ooh, sorry, Beautiful Boy, Darling Boy, and Woman. For her part, Ono's contributions were a little edgier and more in line with post-punk and new wave of the day. Yes, and if the credits are correct, and I have no reason to think they aren't, I've said this many times, Yoko's songs on this, I know she takes a lot of ribbing, are actually quite strong, and they are edgier. Mostly his are uh, happy songs, like, like, as she said, domestic bliss songs, but there's a couple of edgy tunes there, I believe. They did two albums together during that period, before his tragic death. And uh, I believe um, Losing You is also on Double Fantasy. That's an edgy song. That's uh, mm, here in some true. stranger's room here in the afternoon, yes. you know, and it's just like uh, well, this bleeding heart stuff and everything, bleeding guts. It's a, it's a very heavy song. Well, do you believe that he might be alluding to his five years away where he had took on other lovers and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, it's probably also from the past, too. Right. He definitely was not always a uh, white knight, a Romeo or anything uh, in his <laughs> right. life. So, uh, I mean, if you've had these dark experiences, you might as well get a damn song. Might album, as well. You know? So that's um, probably that. Uh, but I thought it was a really strong record, and it was good to have him back, you know, and, and like, wow, where did this legend go? And then he came back with uh, with a strong album with his wife, and I think vindicated her, honestly. I think it was good on both of their parts, as was the, uh, the follow-up, I believe, Milk and Honey, I think it was called. But uh, I remember this record coming out, and I loved it. Obviously, the sense of contentment that the record actually permeates, as you mentioned, it only adds the tragedy of his death that happened just three weeks after Double Fantasy's release. Wow. So, very tragic. And before I go on any further, I want to go ahead and thank ultimateclassicrock.com because that is where I pulled this information. So, we appreciate being able to share your wisdom with our listeners and uh, give our thoughts 
on all of these albums. So I will go on to another one near and dear to your heart, Mm -hmm. Steely Dan's Gaucho. Ah, yes. Love Steely Dan. A lot of people do, as we found out. Few albums reflected post-70s burnout better than Steely Dan's Gaucho. Donald Fagan and Walter Becker stripped back their usual complex arrangements in favor of sparse grooves on tracks like Hey 19 and Time Out of Mind, although their knack for jazz harmonies was evident on Babylon's Sisters and the title track. Yeah, Steely Dan, well, there really isn't a group like them that never has been the... I wrote up this big thing about their, because I thought we were going to talk about something, and they were going to come up, and I was going to talk about their lyrics, and I had all kinds of stuff that sounded semi-coherent. But um, (laughs) they really did write quirky, edgy lyrics, and their amalgam of jazz and rock and pop. They're radio-friendly, and they're darlings of the rock crowd as well. They are, and and that's hard to come by. It's hard to come by. And we went, the only time we've seen live music in the last nine months, ten or, you know, nine months now, we were at a restaurant for a brief period. There was a jazz trio that had uh, kind of uh, slipped through the cracks and for was like playing there weeks. for like it four was weeks. Great. And they were playing all these things, and we actually got to dance to live music. And they played a couple of Steely Dan tunes because they fit right in. And ah, they played Peg, in fact. They did, it was which is wonderful. one of my favorites. Yes, absolutely excellent. Love Steely Dan. And they were on the radio all the time. Was I sitting there waiting to grab that record when it came out? I wasn't, in fact. I've never even had Gaucho. But. Steely Dan is a very big deal in my musical adolescence. But, uh, yeah, Double Fantasy, that's one of those ones I bought. Yeah, And oh, I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure there were other 1980 records, uh, two of them coming to mind that I believe were released that year that I definitely snapped up. And so go ahead, who's next? Oh, well, interesting. If they are not on this list, please share them. Oh, yes. I think they were 80, yeah. Now, I will say right now, I didn't own any of these albums, and I don't currently own, well, I own one of these albums. But uh, it was just, I was a little young for all these. But, yeah, I you don't know, have either of them you but, know, at the but moment, going, but I did have one. You know. But going back, I mean, and listening to the music, it's incredible music, and Steely Dan, sadly, broke up shortly after releasing Gaucho. You know, they broke up. They were getting close. But then they close. got back together yeah. again. You know, yes, but, yeah. exactly. But it was kind of like, uh, you know, one of those, oh, what a great album. Okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. So the next one is Eagles, Eagles Live. Oh. Tensions caused the Eagles to implode in July 1980, but the band still owed their label another record. So they took 15 highlights from the previous two tours, made a bunch of overdubs, and put out Eagles Live. The lone track that had never been released in a studio version was a cover of Steve Young's Seven Bridges Road that peaked at number 21. Wow, I love the Eagles, and I, I had a, you a number of things. I never had that record. Mm. Uh, I've heard the Eagles live. I've have, I have some Eagles live stuff, but not that one. So that one eluded me. Mm. You must pick it up, or at least you must uh, try <clears throat> Spotify. Maybe. I'll just listen to it. I don't have to buy it. <laughs> well, you can listen to it. Try it before you buy it. That's what yeah, I say. Yeah. Try it before you buy. That's usually how I do it. That's what it should be. But Seven Bridges Road, I'm not even familiar with that, but apparently they they did something with that that is quite extraordinary. So peaked at number one. That's not bad. I know they had a hit with it because the name is very familiar. So, okay, that was an Eagles uh, hit. I didn't know it was a cover. But I can't recall it. Probably if I heard Two Measures, I'd be like, oh, yeah. But uh, it's one of those ones the title just doesn't do it. Absolutely. So that was one in 1980. Yet another one, REO Speedwagon. 
High infidelity. Oh, man. Should have seen by the look in my voice, baby, or whatever it was. (laughs) Uh, Ario Speedwagon broke out big in the 80s after steadily raising their profile throughout the previous decade, led by the number one ballad, Keep on Loving You. High Infidelity topped the Billboard Albums chart and spawned three more top 40 hits, including Take It on the Run, which reached number five. Yeah, and they were a real hit machine then with the they power. Were. They were the power ballad guys. Yes. Now we were into them a year or two before that with the live album, and uh, you get what you play for. I believe it was called. Mm. And Gary Richrath, that was a great guitar player, and you have Kevin Cronin on vocals. And we loved REO live, the, the raw rock and stuff. But those power ballads are great. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, That's I love fine them. stuff. And there's some good rocking on High Infidelity. So I was very happy to see them have that success. Never on the record, but. We heard it constantly on the great WPDH in Poughkeepsie, New York, who gave me a fine, fine education. And they wouldn't just play one album cut. Oh, no. They would play three or four from every new release. So when I'm picking up a lot of these old records, I know a third of them because uh, this station would do such good coverage of these uh, classic rock albums. Yes. Our David here is from New York. New York. Now, you don't hear the accent. Every now and again, it'll creep in. And I did yeah. give you crap on, about it yeah. recently. Yeah, I say yesterday, according to her. Yesterday. And, and, uh, and what's the thought. other I thought. I thought I said something yesterday. Yeah, that's I mean, right. And you none put of out that your ever awning. comes out of my, Yeah, my awning. None you of that ever comes out of my mouth, of water. course. But, yeah, water. Water. <laughs> water. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cute. Yesterday. I'm just, it just kills me. The yesterday is the best. I don't say that. You, oh, my <laughs> God. Search through the hundreds of hours of radio I've done. And I will. See if you can find me saying I'll, yesterday. I'll once. find you saying yesterday. <laughs> you say it when you're not thinking about it. You say it. All but right. anyway, so lots of great stuff came out of New York, and I will say, I mean, I again, I don't have a lot of guilty pleasures. I love Ario Speedwagon. I do. I love power ballads. I love Boston. We were just talking about oh, that too. Oh man, I'm totally in. So mm. I've got no shame. I love Ario Speedwagon. And I have no shame about loving this next band. Yes, Yes Shows, recorded between 1976 and 1978. Yes Shows documented how Yes transformed the songs found on the four albums between Tales from Topographic Oceans and Termato in concert. It lacked the hits from their seminal early 1970s records, but Yes Shows nonetheless breathed new life into material from an oft-maligned period. Yeah, an unfairly maligned period after, well, Topographic Oceans is brilliant. Tales from Topographic Oceans is a fantastic record, and on the Yes Symphonic Live, they do Ritual. I mean, it's come on, that's a great album. The Revealing Science of God. Revealing Science of God. What shocks me is Rick Wakeman's comments about that record. He said, I hated Topographic, and I'm glad I wasn't around to play on Relayer, which is a masterpiece. Patrick Moraz little trivia about him. He was a, a very huge part of the Moody Blues comeback mm. and uh, played on a number of the second wave of Moody Blues hits and everything. He was a part of that whole thing. And if you buy the Moody Blues gold that covers that whole period and beyond, they have exhaustive credits about every who did what, and his name is not mentioned once. It's absolutely shocking. Oh, my. And I'm like... I was reading through this. It's like, did I make it up that Patrick Moraz was in the Moody Blues? No, he was. They just don't. They just dissed him. They totally dissed him. Uh, but yeah, killer album with yes. That whole period is good. I oh think. Oh my god, it's incredible. Uh, going for the one is an all-time favorite. 
and uh, Tormato. Uh, oh, that concert criminally, you saw. Criminally, uh, yeah, that was the tour I saw. Right, exactly. One of these days, I'll, I'll concert to crow about that. Maybe you should. Seeing yes, in the round at Madison Square Garden on the Tormato tour. Uh, Can't even or Tormato. Tormato, Tormato. Potato, potato. I'm with you. Let's call the whole they thing should off. Have had a <laughs> portato would have been better. You know? <laughs> but that's a that's a good record, too. Very strong record. Uh, classic lineup, you know, Wakeman, White, oh. uh, Anderson, Squire, Howe. Oh, come on, baby. Come on. That's it. That's where 70, it's at. 1980 was a killer year. Uh, it was. Still, I'm waiting for some things that I believe came out in 80 to be on the list. But yes, oh, absolutely. Oh. All right, well, we got a double header from the next one, Motorhead, Ace of Spades. Motorhead's aggressive, sped-up mixture of metal and punk reached its zenith on Ace of Spades, but the album's more than just its classic title track. Still, the band's best-known song, Love Me Like a Reptile, Bite the Bullet, and The Hammer are among the other standouts. Yeah, back in those days, I was all but oblivious to Motorhead. But you know them now. I know them now, yeah. I knew uh, I knew Ace of Spades, and I knew Killed by Death. And I think that was it. And I just I knew what they looked like, I knew their logo, and I knew, but I knew kind of what they sounded like. But until Lemmy died, and out here in California, folks, he's a big deal. You go to the Sunset deal. Strip, there's the Lemmy's Lounge downstairs at the Rainbow Bar and Grill with the statue of him that everybody poses in front of, his yep. mural on the outside wall. But um, until after Lemmy passed away, I was not familiar with them. And then I got into them, and it's like, this band is incredible, fantastic, much more than just your speedy metal band that you would expect, because uh, Lemmy was a real intelligent guy, despite his wild lifestyle. And um, his influences, he's very big into Buddy Holly and everything, and uh, he's, a, he's a real rock and roller, and Motorhead was just great. But back in those days, I was not that into Motorhead at all. So mm, Interesting. Yeah. Well, the other one is Motorhead's Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers. Motorhead's label took advantage of their commercial breakthrough in the UK by issuing four tracks from sessions for the rejected 1977 debut album as an EP. Oh, very I clever. Know, right? <laughs> the title track was a remake of a 1973 ZZ Top song. I was going to say, that's what I associate Bill Drinkers yes. and Hellraisers, yeah. They also covered John Mayall's I'm Your Witch Doctor. Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers was eventually expanded to a full-length release. Brilliant on the part of the record company. Yeah, really clever. Waste not, want not. Exactly. Strike while the iron's hot, all those cliches, you know. I will say, I really do like Motorhead. Bruce actually got me into them. He really likes Motorhead. I mean, I don't know that it's one of his top bands of all time, but he digs it. He gets it. He understands it. He likes it. And he's, of course, introduced me to a lot of it. Some of it, whether I like it or not, I get introduced to stuff. But, you know, that's what happens. But, no, Motorhead definitely is an institution here, as is Lemmy, so for sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Those were two huge things that happened in 1980. And now, Neil Young, Hawks and Doves. Neil Young seemed bereft of ideas after closing out the 70s with the definitive statements, Rust Never Sleeps, and Live Rust. The first half of the 30-minute Hawks and Doves consisted of songs he wrote in the mid-70s. And the second featured country songs that could be interpreted as an endorsement of Ronald Reagan, who was elected president of the U.S. the day after the album's release. In keeping, Hawks and Doves was seen by some as a portrayal from a guy whose music helped the soundtrack of counterculture of the previous decade. I'm going to guess that it wasn't an endorsement of Ronald Reagan, not if I know anything about Neil Young. I'm thinking not. Interestingly, I never heard that album, or I'm not familiar with it. I mean, they probably played it, but um, I grew up uh, in the 60s, and of course, Neil Young was a very big deal in my household. In fact, Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, all that stuff, 
until I moved into the suburbs and uh, got introduced to the glam and prog rock and everything, that was a big part of what uh, my older siblings were listening to. So Neil Young was big for me in the 60s and the 70s. That particular record I didn't miss, you know, Live Rust, Rust Never Sleeps, great stuff. I had those. Well, what about, so some of the songs on Hawks and Doves, Little Wing, The Old Homestead, Lost in Space, Captain Kennedy, Stay in Power, Coastline, Union Man, Coming Apart at Every Nail, and Hawks and Doves. Uh, Captain Kennedy, I know. Yeah, okay, that one—that was one of the ones they were playing that I knew. Got it. And, and I was in uh, uh, a couple of bands that tried to play some Neil Young. Uh, Powderfinger. We tried to play Powderfinger. Oh once, my! So, yeah. So yeah, uh, that was from the uh, you know, Rust Never Sleeps thing. Uh, so I dig Neil Young, but I, I missed that one. Sorry, 1980. I was listening to Rust Never Sleeps back in '80, <laughs> not that one. So yeah. So uh, the Neil Young thing just eludes me. So um, not my thing. So I, I know none of this. Uh, but so I, but um, no doubt you enjoyed Jimmy Kimmel's impression of him. That oh, was, for sure. <laughs> that is priceless. For sure. And I do like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Yeah. I mean, I'm fine with that. But anything Neil Young does on his own, I don't get. We just talked about off-air before the show, talking about voices. His voice just doesn't do it for me. I don't get it. And I understand that it does for many. But while I, I recognize he's out there, I, yeah, yeah. I'm good. He can stay out there. <laughs> he can stay out there. People love him and good for you. Good for them. So the next one is Rod Stewart, Foolish Behavior. Oh. <laughs> Rod yeah. Stewart toned down the dance floor grooves after facing the backlash for going disco on Blondes Have More Fun. They were still there, but he bounced them out on Foolish Behavior with a bit more rock, notably She Won't Dance With Me and Oh God, I Wish I Was Home Tonight. The moody synth-driven passion was a smash, but nothing else made an impact commercially. Yeah, uh, it's funny they mentioned the disco of Blondes Have More Fun because the title track of that was raw rock as you get. Yeah. But uh, he did have some quasi-disco hits, as did a lot of people in that era, like Kiss and everything. And yes. I thought it was awesome, frankly. Why not? Why not? You know, you're still a rock and roller just because you do a disco song every now and then. I loved it. Didn't have that record, but it got a lot of play. Foolish Behavior, the title track, where throughout the whole thing he's talking about wanting to kill his wife. And at the end, but it's oh, it's right. and it, it's just a dream. Oh, I'm so you know, it's like I, just kidding. Yeah, I just wanted to get that off my just chest. Kidding, oh, yeah. it was terrible, of course. I don't so, mean that at all. Other but, things. Uh, Love Rod Stewart. Yeah. Oh yeah, and other tracks, notable or not, off uh, Foolish Behavior, Better Off Dead, Passion, Foolish Behavior. Oh yeah. So soon we change. Oh God, I wish I was home tonight. Give me wings. My girl, she won't dance with me. Somebody special and say it ain't true. Oh, Passion and Gimme Wings both got a lot of play. So those I know quite well. Nice. Yeah. So absolutely, definitely iconic and definitely different. And I really do. I, you know, I understand that for fans who are used to hearing an artist do something specific, that it's disconcerting. Yeah. Right. But to discount an artist for stepping outside of the box that they have, you know, essentially built for themselves, right? Oh, on prog or something. Bruce is just telling me that it's kind of like that for Steven Wilson, right? He's prog mm-hmm. rock guy. And anytime he tries to do anything else, it's always seen through a prog rock filter right yeah. he can't do anything yeah. non-prog because he is prog man and that that's unfortunate because then it really locks down artists like i like what queen did queen did what they wanted to do and i think all artists should be able to do that queen dabbled in every kind of music possible well yeah often on the same album you'd have nine different genres like right. the, the masterpiece to me the miracle whereas oh. when you started talking about that the first thing that came to mind was queen's hot space for sure and yeah it's a lot of you know funk disco stuff and everything my problem is not that it's uh, disco it's the fact that some of the songs just plain suck but some of them are really <laughs> good i don't fault an artist for that i don't have to like it i don't 
don't have to buy it, but by all means, I think people should be artistically, you know, sincere to what they want. Like, I think uh, Rush, a band that Bruce really loves, I was watching a documentary on them, and I didn't hear this record, but I heard they made one that was largely synthesized, and mm-hmm. and uh, they took some heat for it and everything from the fans who you know had a set idea of what they were supposed to be. So, yeah, I think artists should do that, though, and just if people don't like it, they don't like it, you know. I agree. And I think, you know, one of the things that I I think people fault artists for is if there is a wave that's coming out and you are not part of that wave, you're going to drown. So either you go with the wave or you get buried because other artists are there. So if you came out of the 70s and you were a rocker and then you hit the 80s and there was pop going on, why not try some pop to keep your, your, you know, your hat in the ring? You know, and if it was going folk, why not try a couple of slow jams? I just don't understand why you can't do that as an artist without your fans rebelling. Yeah, a lot of fans get really, uh, you know, they get indignant yeah, about that and all. But he's like, oh, well, they're following. They're following. Well, maybe they're not following. Maybe they're sincerely influenced and intrigued. And they want to try. Maybe they want to expand and say, hey, I wonder if we could do this. You know, right. Not like we're they, trying to stay relevant. I don't think it's that at all. But or, even if they are, so So what? what? Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm just going to give you a stupid example. You know, I do training for a living. I write and develop training. Am I not going to look at a new software because I go, oh, no, 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 I'm old school. No, I'm going to look at the new software. I'm going to try it. I'm going to say, you know what? I like it. I don't like it. But I'm going to try it. I'm not going to just say I'm not going to do it because I'm old school. It doesn't make any sense. It's part of growth. It's part of trying new things. It's part of, you know, stepping outside of your paradigm. That's what makes us who we are yeah and a lot of artists have done that they have said they have especially with the disco thing a lot of artists i mean like queen and kiss mm-hmm. and a lot of you know glammy rock artists rod stewart went in that direction said let's dabble in this i think it's fun i think it's, it's good so it's much cool fun. and uh movies do it too people say oh they're trying to stay real. no if something is going on at that time why not get involved with it the, who cares the I james don't... bond series okay 1973 live on that die let's go black exploitation you know let's make a black exploitation because that was really big you know quentin tarantino's favorite movies you know very big at that time then they did uh, some kung fu in the next movie because that was a big thing and then they went to space because that was a big thing at the time what the hell i think it's all in fun and in music too i have no problem with that at all yeah i don't understand it so however uh, i don't want to go as far as to uh suggest that every single song should have a damn rap break in it like they have now (laughs) i hate that shit country (laughs) songs you know we got this breaking out in a rap break in the middle of a country song not that country could be any worse you know but yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a limit to it. But yeah, I, I think it's good to experiment, and sometimes it results in some of people's best work. Well, speaking of people breaking out into a rap break and uh-uh. some of people's best work, uh, not this album, but Blondie was one of the first to have a rap break. So in a, I in a just, hit song, that's I'm just going to yeah. say that's right. So Blondie's "Auto American" came mm. out. So Blondie left their New York home to record the band's fifth record in Los Angeles. What? The result, Auto American, was a typically diverse collection of songs from New Wave, Angels on the Balcony, and girl group pop T-Birds to Disco, Live It Up, and even Broadway, Follow Me from the musical Camelot. An unwillingness to stay in one place is summed up by the LP's two number one singles, The Tide is High, uh, was a cover of Paragon's reggae single, while Rapture helped introduce much of the mainstream America to hip-hop. Yeah, Auto American is many Blondie diehard fans like me mm-hmm. uh, favorite album. It's certainly one of those ones that stands entirely alone. Although most of the records do, I mean they're not in any kind of band. Some disco band, for heaven's sakes, it is like one disco song or two or three. Uh, they're not a punk band. They're not an anything band. But Auto American is a phenomenal album. It really is. Great story about the tide is high. That uh, Deborah Harry went into the studio one day with this 
cassette tape of that song. She said, hey, what do you think about this one? I think we should do this one. And it became this gigantic hit. Gigantic. And they tried a similar one on the next album, a song called The Island of Lost Souls, which is similar to that. But that was a really a good example of a bold experimental yes, album. for uh, sure. Auto-American. They really went out there on that one. And there's some amazing, kind of like... Uh, Torch songs, uh, Broadway kind of vaudeville songs and everything. It's just, it's extraordinary. It is, it's like Led Zeppelin three. It's one of those albums that stands entirely alone in someone's catalog and doesn't really sound like the others, but you can't picture it being their entire body of work without it. Right. I mean, picture Led Zeppelin's canon without Led Zeppelin three. It's no. impossible. And it's many people's favorite albums. And Rapture. Just like, yeah, Rapture. I mean. I mean, that... I actually played on a cover, very shittily, on a cover of Rapture once. It's such a classic. That it whole is album such is a brilliant. Classic. And that's one of those things that has to be there in Blondie's uh, body of work. And uh, I loved it. And yeah, uh, we were very into that. Although I wasn't as into Blondie then as I became like three or four years ago when I started collecting all the records. But we were very hip to that at the time, too. So, Well, I'm just going to tell you that I'm going to partially blame Debbie Harry for all these rap breaks and songs because it, she kind of started it. So, all right. At least it it's on her song. She doesn't have a guest come in and do it for her. Well, but, you know, she might now. Yeah. You know. All right, so from uh, Blondie to Whitesnake, live in the heart of the city. Whitesnake were a few years away from multi-platinum success in the U.S., but they were big enough in their native U.K. by 1980 to partake in a time-honored rock tradition, the double live album. Compiled from three shows at London's Hammersmith Odeon, in 1978 and 80, live in the heart of the city, focused mostly on their first four records, although they made room for a pair of songs David Coverdale wrote, While in Deep Purple, Might Just Take Your Life and Mistreated, as well as a cover of Bobby Blue Bland's Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City. Wow. From whence came the title. Now, White Snake, of course, that's David Coverdale's yes. band. And White Snake, to me, was 40 years ago, was mostly radio. It was the stuff I heard on the radio, but I liked it. Of course, I knew it was Coverdale, and who would later go on to record with Jimmy Page, uh, make an album with Jimmy Page, and had already been in Deep Purple. That might come up on the next Birds of a Feather. Interesting. Too. Mm. But I loved White Snake. I loved the stuff they were playing back then. And 1980, remember, folks, this is a year before MTV. Yes. So music videos, every damn song didn't have a music video no, back then. Although it was soon to come, and White Snake was going to be very big with that. They were going to capitalize uh, on that. Uh, Tony Katane. Yeah, exactly. That is still, I'm sorry, Tony Katane is still one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen on a car in my life. <laughs> I was just like, I watched that video, and just I was agape. I was like... I will never be as beautiful as that woman. It's like, Tony Katane, so this must be a White Snake video. Yeah, it must and, be. Um, and she was this, gorgeous. Uh, oh, but, I love uh, that. Yeah, that's a good band. I like them. I didn't have their stuff, but I did like them, and we were certainly listening to them radio-wise. But well, I'm waiting for the other ones that I went out and got. Well, wait a minute. Songs off that album, just in case. Oh, yeah. Come On, Sweet Talker, Walking in the Shadow of the Blues, Love Hunter, Fool for Your Loving. Oh, big one there, yeah. Ain't Gonna Cry No More. Ready and willing, take me with you, might just take your life, lie down, ain't no love in the heart of the city, trouble and mistreated. Mistreated is kind of like, I remember one critic referred to it as Richie Blackmore did it or in Rainbow. And somebody said, in the next 15 minutes is taken up with that old purple puke, Mistreated, because it isn't a terribly great song. Might just take your life is killer, though. I got to say, that's a great one. But, uh, yeah, White Snake's good. Coverdale, yeah, he always brings it. Anything with Coverdale singing on it, I'm in. I, I love Coverdale. Old, 
knew I loved 80s Coverdale, even though everybody hated him. We're like, what is that? I'm like, I was fine with it, you know, again, but it all reflects the age that I was when all that came out. It's like the ultimate 80s. Yes. That's 80s right there. With 80s the rock. Hair. Yeah. He just didn't have the makeup. I mean, he had makeup, but it wasn't glam makeup. It wasn't like poison or anything. No, <laughs> which I was fine with that too. Yeah, I was oh open, yeah, yeah. But no, 80s is maligned as a bunch of posers with hair and everything, but the songs really do stand up by and large, honestly. And know? I've never seen men look that beautiful in my life, so I'm fine with it. You know? I'm fine with makeup myself. Yeah, yeah, I like the makeup thing. I'm totally, I like the gold lipstick thing too. So anyway, Elvis Costello taking liberties oh yes taking liberties was a bit of a catch-up for elvis costello fans compiling numerous non-lp tracks and prolific songwriter had recently released and added three previously unheard songs highlights included i don't want to go to chelsea Ah. which had been left off the u.s version of this year's model and girls talk which had been a hit for dave edmonds a few years earlier i didn't have this one i love elvis costello elvis costello is one of the greatest songwriters ever you know I don't want to go to Chelsea. Oh, man. I mean, this record I did not... There are a lot of his stuff that I have to catch up with because he's just so good. But the first handful of records he made, oh, my goodness, Armed Forces. I was just totally berserk about that. But this is right when I started to lose out, to miss out on Elvis Costello. Well, some of the songs off that album, Clean Money, Girls Talk, Talking in the Dark, Radio Sweetheart, Black and White World, Big Tears, Just a Memory, Night Rally, Strangers in the House, Clown Time is Over. Wow, there's so many. I'm not going to list them all. Who's got this kind of time? (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) There's a whole bunch of them. Now, I I think he's a brilliant songwriter. I'm not a... It's kind of like the Bob Dylan thing for me. I'm like, "Mm, not sure if he should be singing his own songs. Oh, I I love his voice. But I really, really love his songwriting. I think he's got great songs. So I'm not sure, but, you know, I will allow you to try to change my mind. Well, you either like his voice or you don't, but I love it. I absolutely love the way he sings. Interesting. Well, you also love Roger Daltrey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't get that. Okay. Many people do. So Mm -hmm. I'm definitely in the minority. Many people love it. So, Hey, I admit it. I'm not saying that my opinions are popular. They're just mine. They're just right. (laughs) (laughs) I actually said they're just mine. (laughs) I was just saying what you meant, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you. I was not trying to say that. What about ABBA Super Trooper? Oh, Yes. Super Trooper wasn't Abba's swan song. That would come a year later with The Visitors, but the two relationships within the group were disintegrating. Bjorn and Agatha had already divorced, and Benny and Annie Frid would split in early 1981. That pain was reflected in their last U.S. Top 10, The Soaring, The Winner Takes It All. Oh, I know, right? But they proved that they could still fill a dance floor with Lay All Your Love On Me. I guess they didn't want to go Fleetwood Mac and just stay together anyway and make music. You <laughs> <Right. know? laughs> it didn't Hateful stop Fleetwood Mac. It you know? didn't stop them. I had this album, mm. and I had, this was the Super Trooper, right? Yes, correct. I had this one and Voulez Vu. Oh, yeah. And you know what was really fascinating to me is um, Ian Forkhandles, Ian Moss, who does the Fusion Music Radio show Flowing Backwards, he was talking during his interview about Top 100 Recommended Records, and one of them, he said, was Abba Voulez Vu. And it was like, great, have this punk rock legend say, this is a badass album, because it really is. Both of them are extremely fine records. I loved uh, Super Trooper. Agreed. No, I think it's brilliant. I I'm a huge ABBA fan. I love ABBA. Huge. I love them. I mean, it was, again, and I've said it a million times, but older brothers, door, ear to door, listening to him play. 
ABBA. Um, and of course, ABBA is just timeless. Anytime I'm feeling crappy, you throw on some ABBA and I'm down. Even, uh, even the harsh songs, like the painful songs, yeah. are so, so beautiful. The winner takes it all. Oh, heartbreaking. And like a super trooper, lights are gonna blind me. Oh, they friggin' uh, rock, super man. Super super come on. <laughs> come on, man. It's so good. Come on. Love ABBA. So then we are to our last album that I'm going to mention on this show, and it is Neil Diamond's The Jazz Singer. Already one of the biggest pop stars in the 70s, Neil Diamond looked to move to the big screen with a remake of The Jazz Singer. The movie was critically panned, but its soundtrack was easily the biggest of his career. Selling five million albums, Diamond scored three top ten hits with Love on the Rocks, Hello Again, and America. Right? Uh, I mean, I never saw the movie. Oh, never I, saw the movie. I can't even tell you how many times I saw that movie. In really? The theater. No kidding. I love the music. I love the acting. I loved it all. Oh, my God. And we had this album. There are movies that are just panned by everybody that are brilliant. I don't know. Like, I don't know if this is brilliant, but I loved it. I mean, I was very young, but I loved it. It was I, so good. All right, let's not say brilliant, but okay. thoroughly enjoyable. Thoroughly enjoyable. Like, one movie that is 100% cover-to-cover, nonstop knockout entertainment that nobody seems to have a good word to say for is Spice World. That movie is freaking phenomenal. It's the most <laughs> wildly Girls. entertaining movie I've ever seen. I mean, it's hysterically funny. I'm sure the jazz singer isn't, not with songs like Love on the Rocks in it's it. It's not fun. But yeah. those songs are just brilliant. Uh, that is a classic Neil Diamond, classic stuff. It's really, really great. It's a really, a really great movie. It was something we watched a million times. A great album. Obviously, Love on the Rocks, Hello Again in America. I mean, hello. That's like, that is definitely Neil Diamond right there. Signature stuff. So, David, that actually is all that we have on today's show. Hopefully, you enjoyed today's topic and it was fun and interesting. Albums 40 years old in 2020. Obviously, we'll have to do a 45. Oh, 45. <laughs> I would, yeah. I would be even more versed on those. Although, there were two. Really big albums that came out in 1980 that I was expecting to be mentioned because we're talking classic rock. Talk to me. ACDC, Back in Black. Mm. Okay, we have two uh, hard rock bands that came out with really definitive albums with new singers in the same year. ACDC, that was the first album with Brian Johnson. And while there is undeniably some filler on there, there are some incredible tunes on that record that stand up all these years later. And... Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell, first mm. record with Ronnie James Dio, and it was a it was just a killer. I remember I got this when it came out because I was already a big big. Sa- I'd seen Sabbath five years earlier in concert. It was my first concert, and so when they ditched Ozzy, uh, and I loved them all the way up through the last one. Never said hey, they ditched Ozzy and came out with Dio, with whom I was not that familiar. I had not really listened to much Rainbow or anything, mm, um, right. and. I heard that record. I simply couldn't believe how awesome it was. I would listen to anything with Tony Iommi on it. And it was so, it was just so damn good. So, yeah, ACDC Back in Black and Heaven and Hell are two classic rock records that came out this year that the audience will not be screaming because I mentioned. Because they would be like, hey, wait a minute, what happened to this? Not that anybody out there listening is as old as I am. But, uh, yeah, so those were two uh, honorable mentions. And beyond that, I can't think of any. So, Good list. Well, there were a couple more that I didn't include just for time. John Anderson's Song of Seven. That was an album. The Alan Parsons Project, Turn of a Friendly Card. Oh, nice. Adam and the Ants, King of the Wild Frontier. Good ones. The Jam, Sound Effects. Rory Gallagher, Stage Struck. Midnight Oil, Bird Noises. 
Boys Next Door, The Birthday Party. Oh, I don't know that one at all. I don't either. So those were the ones that didn't get included so that we could really focus on the other ones that were bigger records at the time. Good call. That was a good call. Yes. yes. So those are the other ones that came up on the top 20 major albums that turned 40 in 2020 as uh, provided to us by ultimateclassicrock.com. So... That takes us to the end of our show this time, David, and we certainly were winging it this time, as we do every time, Mm -hmm. and that only leaves for you to say... I'm starting to be able to remember it now. (laughs) Let's fly this coop. This has been Birds of a Feather on Fusion Music Radio.